Welcome to QAV. This is episode 641. We recorded this on the 10th of October, 2023. If you're new to the show, welcome. My name's Cameron Riley. This is a podcast that I've been doing for a few years with my good friend, Tony Kynaston. Tony is a very experienced value investor. He's been doing it for 30 odd years and his portfolio achieves around about, on average, double market performance. And on this show, we talk about his methodology that he calls QAV, quality at value. Basically, how do you buy shares in good quality companies and get them at a discount to their intrinsic valuation? That's what we teach on the show. This week on the free episode that you're listening to, we're going to be talking about Red October, Dumb Money versus Wall Street. We're going to do a deep dive on SXE. We're going to talk about the difference between our quality score and our QAV score, how Tony manages market downturns when he's leveraged, and how he plans to live off his portfolio in retirement when there are down years in the market. So let's get into it for today. Market crash last week. I think it was US-related figures Mm. again. It's recovered. It's recovered quite a bit, but I think we're still at a six-month low today so it's mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of frustrating as an investor to spend six months diligently following a process and then the market just cuts you off at the knees yet again for the umpteenth mm-hmm. time in the last couple of years yes no you're right it is frustrating but it happens that's that's the business we're in unfortunately or fortunately in the long run fortunately in the short run at the moment not so great and i guess also too like my note for today was the hunt for Red October because October is always the witching hour for, for the stock market for some reason. And the 87 crash happened in October, the GFC, well, there's plenty of starts to the GFC, but I think maybe Lehman Brothers collapsed in October. Yeah, October always seems to be the the thinnest ice in the stock market. So well, hopefully I'm we're, we're, we're going ahead, but wouldn't this, could, this week could be a dead cat bounce, unfortunately, we'll see. I was blaming QAV club member Reg Travaskis because he said to me the end towards the end of last month, October is always you know quite often the worst month. And I mm. went back over the last five years, and actually the last five years October has been reasonably a good month. And I said I don't know about. It. He goes, oh, I, I read it on a forum somewhere. <laughs> I said I, I, I don't know, I don't know, Reg. I think you might be a little bit pessimistic about your October, of course. Very first day of October, the market crashed. So I was blaming Reg, but yeah, you're, you're backing him up that there is a history of October. Yeah, related yeah, and, to and look, it's been myths. it is a market myth, and it's been debunked. But it is coincidence that you know the, the the Wall Street crash that kicked off the Great Depression happened in October. Eighty-seven happened in October. GFC kind of got underway in October. Um, and the and the the old myth is sell in May and go away. That's uh, until the end of October. Um, but again, there's been plenty of research to show that you wouldn't have made or lost money if you adopted either of those strategies. But I mean, selling in October or, or sell it May and go away. But yeah, it's a skinny month. Well, on more entertaining news, I read this thing in the Financial Review last week. We didn't get a chance to talk about it on last week's show, but it's about Keith Gill, the hero of the AMC debacle last year. Was it last year or the year before that that happened? 2021, I guess. It was a couple of years ago. GameStop and AMC. Right. Yeah, I I took a photograph of a GameStop shop when I was over in the States in April. I should post that. 
<laughs> it was there wasn't a customer in sight. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure people. We don't need to go over the story. People remember it. Bets was the subreddit, and this it was started by this guy Keith Gill, who went by a number of aliases online. But there's a new movie apparently coming out this month based on his story called Dumb Money, starring Paul Dano as Keith Gill. And I, I thought this was just a really interesting story. I don't know if you had a chance to read it in the film mm. review, but he was kind of pretty much a nobody, as they say in this. <laughs> he was an unremarkable financial services guy living in an unremarkable rented house in an unremarkable Boston suburb, one of many millions of ordinary decent Americans. But at night, he would post YouTube videos and write posts on Twitter and Reddit's Wall Street bets about which stocks were catching his eye. He mixed this advice with his thoughts on Belgian beers and would celebrate big gains by dunking chicken goujons in one of those beers or perhaps in a glass of Prosecco if he was feeling flash. Sometimes he would consult Uno cards or a magic eight ball, a novelty toy shaped like a pool ball, which offers 20 possible answers to any yes-no question. I, I like that whoever wrote this felt like they yeah. had to explain what a magic eight that's, ball was. Uh, that's what I thought when I read it. Too, this guy's being paid by the word. It's the latest technology that people might not have caught up with yet, the Magic 8-Ball. He went by uh, Roaring Kit, Roaring Kitty on YouTube and Twitter and deep effing value on Wall Street Bets. But just the story about, you know, how he just got behind GameStop mm. and how just people jumped on board. And mm. he like it, apparently he got out and made a bucket load of mm -hmm. money which he managed to hold on to. He got out at the right time, and a lot of people lost a lot of money, but he got out of it with about uh, 20 million US dollars, Ooh, apparently. Good yeah, well, he was, I mean, what he was focusing on is companies that were being shorted, and then he was trying to create what's called a short squeeze. So I, I don't know if he honestly believed that GameStop was a good investment, but it, it was for him because he could see it was heavily shorted. And it makes sense because... They're trying to sell you physical games, game cartridges in the day and age with everything being streamed. It's a bit like Blockbuster Video was towards the end. And yeah, so heavily shorted company may even have been profitless, going broke, but uh, he had enough followers to drive the share price up, which then forced a short squeeze, which was all the people who'd shorted the stock were then worried about unlimited losses if the share price kept going up, which happens when you're short. And so they had to sell, which was, well, first of all, they had to buy the stock and then give it back to the person that they borrowed it from to short it. So that pushed the price up as well. And then he got out. But unfortunately, in all the sort of euphoria and memes and to the moon <laughs> postings, but the retail people who supported him didn't get out and then the short squeeze was over and GameStop dropped back to what it was originally in, in terms of its share price. Yeah, and I remember we, we were talking about it at the time and you were positing that there were probably major players that were making a lot of money and just laughing at the whole dumb money thing flowing in and the financial review sort of backs that up. It says... Inevitably, the real picture is not as clear-cut as the David and Goliath narrative where retail investors make a killing while Wall Street takes the hits. Plenty of hedge funds made serious money 
both from their own stakes and from lending out stocks to panicking mm. short sellers. Mudrick made $200 million, Senvest $700 million, BlackRock more than $2 billion. The hedge funds which did go under did so because rivals kicked them when they were down. GameStop might have brought the likes of Melvin to its knees, but it was Melvin's competitors who didn't let it get back up. <laughs> and for every small-time investor who cashed in, there were many others who held on to their stock too long and never saw a profit. GameStop is now trading at less than $18 a share, around the same level it was before the short squeeze began. WSB is full of young, aggressive traders who ignore fundamental risk management principles and regard letting go of stock as weak. So I like this quote from an analyst, Michael Pachter. He said, the guys who got in because of the structural short, that was a smart move and that was the right thing to do. The guys who stayed in because they believe in GameStop's new executive chairman, Ryan Cohen, dumb asses. <laughs> Keith Gill's yeah. army may have won a battle, but Wall Street won the war. It usually does. Yeah, well, so he's done well to make 20 million bucks, but that's pales into insignificance compared to what Wall Street made. Yeah. Mm. So I thought that was uh, like just, just another one of those stories of people getting excited, following the hype, and many of them, most I would guess, mm. getting burnt. Um, and looking to TikTok for financial advice <laughs> or Reddit or whatever. whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And not yeah. checking it out themselves. And we're seeing a version of that in reverse now, really, all the doom and gloom that's going on. I saw a, I saw a post the other night on Facebook about how many – Canadians were selling their holiday homes and their boats at the moment because their mortgages were stressing out and how that was going to be the end of the end of the world for the Canadian stock market. Well, maybe, but again, following a post on Facebook and selling all your stocks is not a, is not good financial advice. So, you want to do a pork pork? I do. I did prepare one. I know I said that we had lots of questions, but I started to do it before we agreed not to, so we may as well do it. We can always hold a question over to next week if you like. Yeah. All right. Let's do that. And one of the reasons for doing it was I wasn't familiar with this company. When I had a look at it, I thought, this is interesting and it's worth talking about. Okay. So small cap stock. So just I'll get that out there first. ADT is only $111,000. So it will only suit small portfolios. The company is Southern Cross Electrical Engineering. SXE. Sexy is the code. Oh, I like uh, and- it already. It's in, it's in the name, what it does. It's an electrical contractor. It works across a number of industries, resources, commercial infrastructure, retail. Started off as a very small company in Perth back in 1998 and then grew by organic means, mainly in the resource sector, but also through mergers and acquisitions. Listed in 2007 on the ASX. Along the way, Southern Cross Electrical Engineering bought or merged with other companies one was called Dartel, or Datatel, sorry. One was called Heyday Group, SJ Electric, SEME Solutions, and TriVantage is the most recent. And the reason for mentioning that is it gives them a broadening area of specialization expertise in telecoms. They do supermarket electrical work and retail fit-outs, store fit-outs. They do electronic security, and they're getting big into switchboard manufacturing and installation. So 
we're covering a lot of the a lot of the waterfront there for electrical engineering. And the I think the real interesting prospect for that and for them is in one of the presentations they made recently, where they said if Australia is to meet its stated targets for emission reduction by twenty fifty, and then they list a whole heap of stats what to, to what has to happen. There's got to be a 30 times increase in the battery storage area, a nine times mm. increase in wind and solar connection to the grid, a five times increase in distributed solar, which I guess is solar on the roof and factories, et cetera, a two times increase in electricity usage, I guess primarily to replace gas, and then decommissioning of the gas and coal plants from the grid. So there's a large potential for this company to ride the that kind of electrification wave, which is, you got to say, even if Australia doesn't meet its targets, which is probably doubtful because they're fairly ambitious, it's still going to mean a lot of work for electrical engineers in the next 25 odd years. So that caught my eye. And just sort of to back that up, some of the recent highlights for this company, they've just finished staff village accommodation, I guess the wiring for those, for Rio and BHP. And uh, a lithium mine I hadn't heard of. They've just finished wiring up a solar farm, the not the Tom Price battery storage facility. Uh, they're starting work on the Western Sydney International Airport. They've just won the um, electrical installation at the Atlassian building, which is being built in Sydney, and the Shoalhaven Hospital. Uh, and they have multiple data centre contracts in New South Wales. So they're picking up lots of work. Um, it's expanding. The workforce is currently greater than 1,400 people. And the other interesting thing is recurring revenue for this company is 35% of the work they're doing. So the higher that is, the better, because that gives them smoothing of their earnings going forward because, you know, tendering for project work can be up and down and follow the, and the cycles of the industries they're in. So, yeah, I thought this was a an interesting play on that kind of electrification of the of the network of the industry and and Australia, I guess. Going to the numbers, the share price is currently seventy eight cents, which is greater than IB one, but less than net equity per share plus thirty percent. So, nets for this company is seventy cents, and book plus thirty is ninety one cents. So it's trading below its book value. It's a high yielding stock at six point four percent, but it just falls below our cutoff, which has now risen to about 6.5% because of um, rising mortgage rates. The prop cap, however, is 4.23 times. And, and this company had, uh, I'm just trying to find the stat, a 46% increase in cash flow year on year. So it's picking up the work and it's picking it up fast. And they're also debt free, which I should mention. And so that, that's one of the reasons why they're starting to pay out the dividends at a higher rate than they have been. Directors hold 3% of this company in stock, Doctor. However, the original founder, a guy called Frank Tomasi, Frank Tomasi nominees, I guess his company, has 18%, but I couldn't find him on the board or any anyone named Tomasi, so it's it's quite possible that's, that's he's retired or moved on, and it's a passive investment, so I, I can't quite give them owner-founder status, but there's still a, a fair bit there from the owner-founder in terms of shareholdings. Consistently increasing equity is a zero, but it was close. It was only one half when the equity went down a little bit. Otherwise, it's been going up nicely. What else? The PE wasn't the highest or the lowest in the last six halves. So can't we score it a zero there? It does have a 
reasonably recent new upturn. So it gets a one there. It goes back to June this year. So all in all, it's a quality score of 67%, a QAV score of 0.16. So it's not high up the buy list, but interesting company then. You'd, you'd have to think if it can, if it can keep going the way it has been going and ride this wave of electrification, the future looks bright. Pardon the pun. Oh, you should quick email them and suggest that as a new slogan, um, <laughs> tagline for their advertising. Charge them a million dollars for it. I added it to one of our portfolios back in August. I think it's up maybe 1% since then. It's gone from yeah. uh, 76 and, cents to 78 cents or something. And the hard part is in finding a stock to even look at today, they're all Josephine's at best right across yeah. the boards. So it's been really hard to find anything to buy this yeah. week. And this one's a Josephine as well, but it has been going up nicely since its results came out. Thank you, SXE. I had a request from Arash just before we started recording today for one on Parenti. So okay. maybe ERN for next week. Yeah. I think we've done that one, haven't we? But I'll have a look. I had a quick look at my notes. I know we've talked about it a few times. Okay. I'm not sure you've done one, but I thought you had, but I searched and couldn't quickly yep. find it. No I'll worries. Again. Yeah, what a what a tough week. I've been, again, sitting on some cash this week because mm. I had to sell stuff and system wouldn't let me buy anything. Mm, yeah. I haven't gone to cash yet because I decided that the two stocks which had breached their 10% rule ones, I, I would use as a trial for 20% rule ones, and they haven't okay. reached that far down and they'd be coming back up again towards 10 So. We'll see. I won't do any more than 10 or two stocks, sorry, to, to, as a trial, but I thought I may as well since they were next cabs off the rank to sell. Right. Mm. But otherwise, I would have been sitting on some cash too, which is what we're supposed to be doing. I mean, mm. I, I kind of look, look, it's tough at the moment. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Market's not reacting well to higher 10-year bond yields in the US, uh, and it kind of oscillates a lot between we're going to have a soft landing to we're going to have a recession as each new data point comes out. So that's Mr. Mark being manic, Mr. Market being manic depressive. But, you know, my kind of longer term take on this is I'm just, I'm thinking back over the last odd years when I paid attention to this kind of data and it's only like a gut feel, but I reckon interest rates have always been around on average around the level they're at now. Um, We've just gone through a period because of COVID, and I guess after the GFC, where they were you know, negative at some in some years and written down to zero and or, or half a percent for for long periods of time, which you know was manna for heaven if you were investing to borrow in the stock market or to or for property or whatever else or to invest in your own business, and that's it's the rate of increase and the and the quickness of increase which is catching some people out. And, and people have been talking all the way along about zombie companies, companies with too much debt that could survive when interest rates were low, but they can't survive when they're a bit high. But I've got to say, I mean, I'm, I, I've used this term before, it's situation normal for the stock market. I mean, interest rate, cash rates between, I mean, the, the RBA wants the cash rate to be between 2 and 3%. So even if it comes down, it's not going to come down much below that. And I would have thought for most of the time I've held a mortgage, the interest rate's been 6 or 7%, which is where it is now. It's, you know, sort of the average. I mean, sometimes it's been a lot more than that. Sometimes it's been lower. But mentally, whenever I'm doing sums on what I can afford, I use a 7% mortgage rate because I think that's where it's going to fall naturally in time. So 
I think, you know, this is a period of transition, which is never great for stock markets, but, I, you know, my, my, my instinct is it's situation normal and yeah, it could get worse, could get better, but over time it'll be fine. When you say situation normal, you mean the position that interest rates are in or the way that the market is just swinging wildly around and seems Both. to have been going through rapid depressions? Because I know your portfolio suffered the last couple of years. Mm. My super certainly mm -hmm. has suffered my super portfolio in the same way. I think we've got a question later on. We might get into that. Mm -hmm. Like and that, and I know you've had bad years before, but the last couple of years have been really bad. Mm. You know, two bad years, really bad years in succession. That's not situation normal, is it? Or is it the the, the fact that those cycles come around once a decade? That's the normal part. Yeah, it's it's more the second part. I, I can't recall having a run of bad years like this before. It could have happened, and I've had two bad years in a row before. I have to look at I the think numbers. GFC, I think 2008, yeah, 2009 true. you did, yeah. and then you rebounded massively in 2010 or something. You know? Yeah, exactly. So I have had a couple of bad years, and this does kind of, my performance kind of reminds me a little bit of the GFC. It's not quite as bad as that, but this kind of prolonged market skittishness as it readjusts to, I'll call them normal interest rates rather than low interest rates. Yeah. Yeah. So that, but that is situation normal to the stock market. And I guess the reason why I'm raising that is, you know, it's human nature. And I've certainly been doing it looking back over the last couple of years saying, what are the signs and what could I have done differently, et cetera, et cetera. But the worst thing to do is to, is to capitulate now and sell out now. And it may be the best thing to do if October, if there's a market crash from here in October, not, notwithstanding that, even if we do have that, I should say, it's going to rebound. I mean, yeah. interest rates are going to normalize. Companies are going to get comfortable with it and it's going to be business as usual. And the market, which is now cheaper than it was two years ago, is going to rebound back to average type conditions. I was just remembering a couple of years ago when interest rates were zero and in nearly negative in some cases, my mother telling me that she heard from someone that interest rates were going negative and that banks would start charging you to hold on to your deposits. <laughs> well, they kind of did because, yeah, at the, at the depths of that low interest rate for bank deposits, a lot of banks were charging you an admin fee. And if you didn't have enough money in the account, you're only 1.1% interest on it. You were actually out of pocket paying the admin fee. Yeah, good point. Mm. All right. Well, I, I we'll we'll get into portfolio performance later on, and I'll do the dummy portfolio okay. performance then. But you know, it's hasn't had a good week, but yes. it's still doing well compared to the benchmark, better than my super portfolio is doing. And we maybe we'll be able to talk about why. Let's get into some questions. First one's from Max. Hey, Cam, I follow a U.S. value investor that filters companies based solely on their quality metrics. He then sits and waits for them to become undervalued, and then buys in. He's an avid Buffett fan and utilizes the Buffett and Munger metrics. I remember in the early days that Tony used to buy companies that scored at least 75% in quality and also had a QAV score over 0.1. Just curious as to why he stopped this. I'm assuming he did some backtesting and found that the quality score in isolation had no correlation to growth. It's just interesting that Buffett prefers great companies at a fair price over fair companies at a great price. 
My guess is that once you're investing billions, you're limited by what you can buy, so the quality becomes super important. Cheers, Max. Yeah, so the set, I mean, this, the QAV of 0.1 cutoff and the quality score of 75% cutoff when I was using it are fairly arbitrary numbers. I picked the QAV score of 0.1 to, because it just seemed that that was giving me a buy list that was long enough to be useful and not too long to be unuseful and too hard, too unwieldy. And it was about sort of 70 to 100 stocks every week, which was a good enough group to, to focus on. Same with the quality score. So I did use it for a couple of years and that was reducing the size of the buy list. And in some weeks it was reducing it right down to a low number. And the what I found was it wasn't making, I didn't do, a, I didn't actually do a regression test on it. It was more observation that I was getting enough, enough of a quality score and just having a QAV cutoff of 0.1 because the quality score feeds into the QAV score. So if you look at the buy list now, there are certainly stocks on the, on there below 75%, but they're usually in the fifties or sixties. So there's still reasonably, reasonably good quality. And certainly towards the top of the list, they're usually a high number. So yeah, so rather than be too prescriptive, I, I dropped the 75% threshold quality, but didn't do any regression testing. I'd invite Max to, to do something and let me know if it's, it's a better outcome than, than the way I do it now. I'm just looking at this week's buy list from top to bottom, ranked by QAV score. The quality scores are 67, 62, 92, 100, 65, 100, 108, 108, 65, 75, 108, 92, 75, 75, 71, 69, 94, 75, 93, 88, 93, 67, 69, 85, 57, Fever Leisure, 87, 73. Yeah, so most of them are close to 70 and above. Yeah. A couple of exceptions. Yeah. Looking down the list. Okay, there's one right down the bottom, Estia, EHE at 50%. Mm-hmm. There's another one at 57, Macmillan, Shakespeare, MMS. Yeah, but most of them are up there. Oh, 55%. What's that? NZM. But yeah, I mean, out of what's that, 70 odd stocks, I'd say 70 of, out of 75 stocks, about 70 of them are sort of 70 and above quality score. Yeah. So it was becoming a bit redundant, filtering it down again to 75% and above the quality. So that's why I don't do it. I did want to spend a little bit of time talking about Buffett and Munger. I think it's, I think a couple of things. There's so much written about what Buffett does that people lose track of what he did when. So he's been investing obviously since the sixties and has a terrific record and all the rest of it. But he, he openly admits along the way that he changed the way he invested and quality it was really charlie munger who made him into a quality investor and bought it so he went from being buying companies because they were super cheap to buying companies because they were good quality at a fair price and 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 that wasn't i'm not sure exactly when that happened but that wasn't near the start of his investing career he was making a lot of good money by buying deep value stocks at the start of his career and then and then changed and possibly partly because the the funds were getting bigger and bigger, and he couldn't get into the small situations, a bit like what I'm doing with the, the buy list now. Uh, so that's certainly part of it. And and the quote that sticks in my mind, to use racing parlance that Charlie Munger quoted, was Warren went from being a speed handicapper to a quality handicapper, which made he went, he went from focusing on how fast the thing ran to how good it was, what, the, what its quality was. And and if you go sort of further into the, the folklore, 
there's the whole insurance industry thing and the concept of free float. So Berkshire Hathaway doesn't have to borrow money because it makes us margin on all the money lying around in its insurance funds waiting for redemptions eventually or not to be redeemed for expiration. So that's a big leg up to Berkshire Hathaway. And the final thing I want to say is that it's probably been in the last maybe 20 years that Warren's openly admitted that he's even changed how he invests a little bit since becoming a quality investor. Um, and, and I should just explain what he sees as being quality. It's it's his concept of moat that's important in that. And by moat, he means how difficult is it for someone, a competitor to get started in the industry and to take down the incumbent? And how easy is, for the, is it for the incumbent to, ri- to raise their prices at any stage in the cycle? And so that's why historically, when he started being, becoming a quality investor, he was buying things like Procter and Gamble and Amex and Coke, even though there were specific value reasons why he did that. There was a scandal with Amex. He worked out that, that Coke had over depreciated, over, yeah, had depreciate, had a larger depreciation charge and it was going to need and would therefore write it back in time. So things like that happened. But in the last 20 or so years, he's gotten into industries that he calls highly government regulated. Now, not every purchase fits that category. But if you look at things like the Berkshire Hathaway energy business, which is all about electricity generation and increasingly solar power, it operates in states where the government sets sets the price pretty much, or at least sets the, the guidelines for the price. And they have, or they have large commercial contracts, which have escalators in them, like a CPI automatic increase each year, for example, in price. Why is that important to Buffett? It gets back to this idea of a quality company being able to rise and raise its prices at any stage in the cycle. What it means is he can do a discounted cash flow on future earnings with some kind of certainty, which you know I've often argued is a is a problem with discounted cash flows. That if we're looking at a company like SXE, like we did today, who the hell knows what's going to happen in five years with that or ten years with that? So factoring in all those things I talked about, like increasing solar in the grid and and um, decommissioning power plants and more data centers and things like that will have an effect on them. What, what, how much effect on the cash flow? I don't even think they know. So mm-hmm. that was the problem Buffett was having when he came to invest. He wanted to use discounted cash flows, but they were so opaque in the most part, except for these companies that had strong moats like your Walmarts and like your Cokes and those kinds of companies where he could reasonably say, this com- A, this company's going to be around in 20 years' time or 30 years' time, and B, it's going to be making more money than it is now. And he could look back over the years that it's been running and, and kind of work out what what sort of level of increase to put into his DC, DCF going forward. It's even easier if you're in Berkshire Hathaway Energy and you've got to deal with the government for 10 years of electricity sales or something like that. So it's predictable cash flow that really drives him at the moment. So what he's doing is taking that predictable cash flow and comparing it to a, a 10-year bond or, or a 20-year bond or another investment which might be better value but harder to predict. And when he's got these billions to put in, that's what he's doing. So I think that's why he's focusing on quality. It's not just the quality of the company, it's the quality of the cash flow going forward. And it's a, for, for anyone starting out, it's, it's still not a bad way to invest, but it's it's not going to give you the same sorts of returns as QAV will. And so at some stages, even the market will be an index fund. So he's got different needs now to what people are in kind of our shoes do. wonder how Apple fits into that. Obviously, it's got a pretty good moat. 
Yeah, just good market of the brand, and it raises its prices during any sort of market cycle. Every year, an iPhone, or every two years, an iPhone comes out. It's never cheaper than the last one. They always no. go up. So yeah, yeah, and and to be fair, Warren didn't invest in Apple. One of his investment Todd or Ted, the two guys he took on to take over from him, found Apple and brought it to him, and he understood it. So. Yeah, I mean, they're always. I mean, Warren isn't wearing handcuffs and only investing in one way. He he is open to situations like he, he's invested in all companies in the last little while because he thinks that's you know the all all price is going to go up. So yeah, but but when he when he invests large chunks of Berkshire Hathaway, he tends to try and find something that's predictable, and that's why he's now called a quality investor. Okay, thanks, TK. Thank you for the question, Max. Right. We've got Alex. Alex sent 400 questions <laughs> last week. And to be fair, I did do a shout out for questions before I remembered that we're having Chris Bachelor on from Media. <laughs> so I think Alex was helping me out here. Let's okay. do a couple. We'll do a couple of Alex's and then mm-hmm. maybe portion the rest out over the next four years of shows. I welcome the questions. I mean, Alex's questions are always good. They are good. There's just a lot here. Let's yeah. start with this one. How did Tony manage market downturns when he was leveraged? Or asked another way, where does the cash come from to pay off the loan in a falling market? Yeah, good question. So I am still leveraged at the moment, and uh, it's it's always dividends, which pays off the mortgage. And I want to stress I'm talking about interest-only loans there. So, you know, if you're paying off principal as well, it's a different kettle of fish, but at the moment, there are plenty of stocks on our buy list which are yielding enough to, to cover the mortgage rate on an interest-only loan, which is about sort of 65 to 7%. And if you take into effect, the, you get a franking credit, which is a tax rebate when, when you, you stock re- when your tax return comes around. Generally, you'll be able to cover the cost of the, of the interest on the mortgage. And if you have a product like I used to have, but haven't got at the moment because they are being clamped down on, which was an overdraft type facility for as a retail investor. So an interest only loan that would amortize the interest um, and allow you to make lumpy payments at some, at, at different stages. As long as you're below the sort of maximum drawdown for the loan, you didn't have to make a monthly payment. Then you could wait for dividends and, and pay them off that way in, in large lumps twice a year, pay off your interest that way. So that's how I did it. It didn't make much difference whether the market was going up and going down. And Alex, I don't know if you have, but go back and listen to one of our early episodes when we had Steve Sammartino on, and he was talking about the, the Sammartino method, and he makes a really good point. And uh, so the Sammartino method, in short, is he took his lump sum when he was retiring from work and wanting to set up investments, put it into index funds, and then just forgot about it. And the reason why he was comfortable doing that is that companies are very low to cut their dividends. And even during the GFC, some companies cut their dividends, but it was generally only by about 25 or 30%. So the cash was still coming in from investments. They, they do, they cut their dividends last. They'd rather raise capital. Yet, you, you get some companies who are in really strange situations where they were borrowing to pay their dividend. That's how desperate they are not to cut their dividends. So even though the stock price might drop, if you ignore the capital movements on your portfolio, Generally, you're still going to get at least sort of 70% of your dividends, even in the depths of the GFC. So you, you can cover your interest. Yeah. If you set it up properly and make sure you're, you're not overgearing, you can cover your interest from dividends at all in all market cycles. Okay. 
the next question from Alex is, how does TK plan to live off his portfolio in retirement in down years? I'm assuming just, there will... Sorry. Yeah. I was just going to say, I think I've just answered that. So yeah. eventually when... It's more when Jenny retires, she's still active on boards. And so, you know, she gets enough income for us to live off and then dividends pay for the mortgage, et cetera. But that can't go on forever. So we'll, we will rejig our finances, pay down our debt. I would think we'll probably sell our, our apartment in Sydney and pay off the mortgage, which isn't that, that big at the moment compared to the value of the property. And, you know, probably move to Melbourne where it depends where Alex settles down, puts down roots and then use what's left to, to buy something and invest and then live off the dividends with what's left. So just living off the dividends. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Yeah, so that's, even that's what should be, all people should aim for that, I think, is to live off their dividends. Yeah, so even in down years when the capital um, value of your yeah. portfolio declines, you're still getting the dividends. Correct, yep. Yeah, so the capital generally declines, well, capital declines, but the yields goes up because the dividend dollar amount doesn't. Now, look, yeah, there'll be one or two companies which which will stop paying a dividend for a year and they will their share price will drop because it's a, sort of the last act of a desperate company. But most of them will continue to pay. Some of them will cut. So, yeah, I wouldn't bank on getting 100% year in, year out of what you're getting now, but sort of 70% would be good to plan your numbers right. around. Yeah. And that's the end of the free episode of QAV for this week. If you're a new listener, I just should let you know how this works. So we have a free episode every week, runs for about half an hour. We have a premium episode also every week. It goes for another 30 to 60 minutes, depending on how many questions we get. It's where Tony answers questions from our club members. If you want to check out the premium episodes and all the other benefits of being a QAV club member, which is access to the checklist and and the Bible and uh, the private Facebook groups and the other comms channels that we have, invites to the dinners, Zoom calls, etc., etc., Sign up for the two-week free trial and check out all that stuff out. You can do that at qavpodcast.com.au. Look for the um, free trial button there. And if you like the idea of value investing QAV style but don't feel like you have the time or resources to learn how to do QAV for yourself, think about signing up for QAV Lite. That's our relatively new service where we send you the stock tips every week. And then we also monitor those stocks in a portfolio. And if they become a sell, we email our QAV Lite members and tell them that it's time to sell that stock and what to replace it with. Check that out too. It's sort of a low effort way of doing QAV. Still better if you know how to do it yourself, I think, because Tony could get hit by a bus and then where are you? But while he's not, we can do this. So check that out, qavpodcast.com.au slash light, L-I-G-H-T. If you don't want to sign up to any of those, just keep listening to the free episode. And if you have any questions, shoot me an email. You'll find that on our website too. All right. Have a great week and good luck with your investing. The QAV podcast is a production of Spacecraft Publishing Proprietary Limited, authorized representative of AFSL 520442. AFS representative number 
Please don't make any investment decisions based solely on listening to this podcast. This is presented as general advice only, not personal financial advice. We don't know your personal financial circumstances. Please see a financial planner before making any investing decisions.